Good evening and thank you all for joining us for this very important class uh, connected with the war going on in Israel today. You know, everyone talks about the ground invasion, ground invasion. The war started two weeks ago and it hasn't stopped. Um, and I say when an enemy attacks you, that's an act of war. And um, since then we are at war. And the only time the war is going to be over is when the enemy is vanquished. So hold your breath. And uh, with a little bit of patience, I'm sure that's what's going to happen in the end. All righty. So, um, usually, usually the topic that we discuss is the Parsha of the Week. Um, now, I can't think of a better Parsha to be learning uh, during such a time when the Jews in Israel are under attack, when the very fact that Jews belong in Israel is coming under question. Um, this is the best Parsha to be reading. Why is that? Because in this week's parasha, it's the first time we learn about the Jewish people. We learn about the first Jew, Avraham, and Sarai. She's called Sarai until the end of the parasha when her name is changed to Sarah. Oh, we have an Avram right over here. Any other Avrams? No other Avrams. I'm glad you came today. So we have a representation of Avram in the room. That's amazing. I'm a Sarah. <clears throat> You're a Sarah. Great. So we have Avram and Sarah. Now I know that we're in the right track. So what happens in this week's parasha? The opening, the first time that God speaks to Avram and that it's recorded in the Torah that God spoke to him. That's the first thing he tells him. Lech lecha, go from your home, go from your parents' home, go from your, your, your place, go from your land, your, your birthplace, and go el ha'aretz asher areka. Go to the land that I will show you. God does not tell him exactly which land. He says, I'm going to take you to a very special land. I'm going to show it to you. And he ends up bringing him to what we call today Israel, the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael. Then it was called Eretz Kena'an. The Canaanites were there. In fact, the Canaanites at that point were in the middle of conquering that land, stealing it from Avram's great-grandfather, Shem. You know what the word anti-Semite is about? What does anti-Semite mean? The children of Shem. The children of Shem. Yeah, so in other words, Semite doesn't just refer to Jews, I mean, it is, it is about Jews, but for some reason it goes all the way back to shame the son of Noach. So we learned in last week's parasha that the world was corrupt and humanity had to be, you know, taken away and there was a flood and all of them were flooded out. They were killed out and the only one that survived was Noach and his three sons, his family, right? Noach, his wife, his three sons and their wives. So Noach took out the map and he split up the territories to all of his three sons. And the land of Israel was given to Shem. Not to Chum. There were three, th- three sons. Shem, Chum, and Yafes. Shem got the land of Israel and other lands, etc. And um, Shem got the land of Israel. But uh, about uh, 600 years later, 600 years after the flood, 500 years after the flood, the grandsons of Chum, who came from, the, from his son Canaan, they went and started to conquer it from shame. And God tells Avram, don't worry. Eventually this land is going to come back to you. To you and to your children. So if anyone comes and says, oh, originally it belonged to the Canaanites, they say, and who did the Canaanites steal it from? They stole it from shame. Right? They stole it from Avram's great-grandfather. Anyway, the point is that in this week's parasha, God tells Avram, the land is yours. It will be yours and it will belong to you and your descendants. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. 
There is no separating the Jewish people from the land or the land from the Jewish people. You try to separate them, you're on the wrong side of history, you're on the wrong side of the world, the wrong side of humanity. Okay, so this is definitely a very strong um, inspiration to us and to the Jewish people in Israel that, number one, they're in the right place. They're not in the wrong place at the wrong time. A Jew in Israel is always in the right place. It's always a good time to be in Israel. That's number one. And number two, it belongs to us. We have nothing to apologize for being there. And number three, all of our blessings flow through the land of Israel. And the ultimate blessing, which is that the Jewish people are going to multiply and they will grow and be successful and do everything that needs to be done. <clears throat> however, however, the talk that we're going to be discussing, the, the talk from the Rebbe that we're going to be learning today is not about the parasha of Lech Lecha, and it's not even about war necessarily, but it is something that is so crucial, especially for Jews that are thousands of miles away from Israel. We're not in the line of fire, we're not on the battlefields, we're not on the home front even, we're far away. So what is our connection to what's going on and how can we participate in this battle. The, this machine is always going up. <clears throat> okay, so the topic that we will be discussing is the topic of attitude. Attitude. You see, one of the biggest issues that all of us face in such a time uh, anxiety, uncertainty, worry, fear. There's a lot of you know, emotions that can overtake us. Um, we start to have our doubts and our questions. Um, and you know, people could be busy just you know, reading the media, reading the news, <clears throat> being upset about certain developments, outraged at the way the media is, per, you know, is, is presenting things and framing things, etc. So the question is, how do we deal with that? And can our attitude actually impact the results of this war. Can it actually help the Jewish people in Israel today? So we'll start off with a beautiful story that was told by the previous Rebbe. Um, and he, he says the story about, so Chabad is the name of the movement, but there's two names to the movement. Chabad Lubavitch. Chabad is an acronym of three Hebrew words. Chachma bin Adas, which are the three levels of intellect. So that describes the philosophy of the movement. But the word Lubavitch, that's actually the name of a Russian town. For 102 years, the Chabad dynasty was headquartered. The Rebbe's lived in a small town called Lubavitch. It's in Russia somewhere. If you go there today, not there's nothing to see. Huh? Not in Ukraine? <clears throat> no, it's in Russia. It's in Russia. It's not in Ukraine. Um, sure. Nineteen thirty-nine. 1939. 1939. So you were in Palestine. We have a Palestinian right here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. We're very honored to have you here with us. So Lubavitch is a town in Russia. Now this town <clears throat> was a small place, but it had some very very legendary people living there. Besides for the Rebbe's. There were the Hasidim, there were the... And, and so at a certain point, there was a yeshiva that was established in Lubavitch uh, that, that trained young men um, to be Jewish warriors, 
to be the warriors of Judaism in Russia afterward, you know, during the time of communism, etc. One of the mentors, his name was Reb Michal. Michal. He was known, you know, Michal, their altar, the old Reb Michal. He was a very old man already when the yeshiva was established. So he had an interesting story that happened to him. All right, so let's read it here on page three. Let's go through the story, and then we'll see how this applies to, to the war. In the time of yeshiva, there was a mashpia. Mashpia means a mentor named Rabbi Michal, the older Hasidim remember who he was. As a young man, one of his children fell very ill, God forbid. At this point, Rabbi Michal did not live in Lubavitch. He lived in a different town, further away from Lubavitch. The doctors gave up, saying there was nothing to be done. Rabbi Michal informed his fellow Hasidim of the situation. They encouraged him and strengthened his spirits. God would certainly have mercy, but he must go to Lubavitch immediately. Why must he go to Lubavitch? In order to go to the Rebbe who was in Lubavitch, it was the third Lubavitch Rebbe, known as the Tzemach Tzedek, he has to go to him immediately that he should pray on behalf of the child, he should give a blessing. Rabbi Michal cried bitterly. He really wanted to go to the Rebbe, but the doctor said that there was only hours left. What point was there in going? Now, how could he be absent from the house when the child is dying? One of the elder Hasidim thundered at him. All right, this, this guy... There was, there was no playing games with these guys. He said, the Talmud says, one must never give up hope for God's mercy. The interceding angels will certainly persuade God to hold the decision for after you return from the Rebbe. This is how much faith these chassidim had. They said, if you're going to go to the Rebbe, everything will be put on hold until the Rebbe can give his blessing. One of his peers, a tailor, joined Rabbi Michal on the journey to Lubavitch. On the way, they found some cheap rides, so they didn't have to walk the entire way on foot. You can imagine, it took several days, perhaps even more than a week, for them to make it to Lubavitch. Arriving in Lubavitch, Rabbi Michal managed to get an appointment immediately with the Rebbe. When I went into the Rebbe, Rabbi Michal recalled, I gave him my prayer note for my child, and a thought crossed my mind at that moment. Who knows what is happening with my son? The doctors gave him just hours. I burst into tears. Now, there, there, there's a few words missing in this paragraph, so I'm going to fill in those words. From the, <laughs> the Rebbe read the note and told me, Don't cry. Think good, and it will be good. Don't wail. You will be at the bar mitzvahs of your grandchildren. Whereas this child is going to live, and you'll see already the grandkids. So he cried because he knew what was going on at home. And what did the Rebbe tell him? Think good, it will be good. In Yiddish, it goes, Tracht gut, ved sein gut. You'll think good, and it will be good. That was the story that happened years earlier when Rabbi Michal was a young man. And he continues and says, Whenever things got difficult, said Rabbi Michal, and he did not have an easy time with his children. Apparently he had a very you know, dramatic life and a whole bunch of issues. Whenever things got difficult, I would picture the Rebbe saying this to me at that meeting, and my heart would feel better. So what did the Tzemach Tzadik tell him? He didn't tell him, don't worry, it's all good, it will be good. He said something very powerful. He said, think good, think positively, and it will be positive, it will be okay, it will be good. Um, so, so obviously his son recovered. 
Yes, his son recovered, and he, as the Rebbe told him, he, he saw the bar mitzvahs of the grandchildren, right? So the son recovered, and he had uh, he got married and had children, etc. So this became this story of the tzemach tzedek telling him, "Think good, and it will be good." The previous Rebbe would say this all the time. He would tell people, "You know, there's an issue, there's a problem, you're worried, etc." Think good, and it will be good. So now we're now here is a quote from the Rebbe. This is from a, a talk the Rebbe gave in 1967. My father-in-law would respond to many questions with the saying of the Tzemach Tzedek, think good and it will be good. Fine. But where did the Tzemach Tzedek get this from? He just made it up. What happened? Right? So in Judaism, nothing is made up. You don't pull things out of the hat, out of thin air. So the Rebbe says, there are people that are always... Now, you have to understand, there are two groups of, of, of people. Some people are like, look, if the Rebbe said this, it's good enough for me. That's good enough. And I was, the Rebbe is a source. That's fine. And if I think good, it will be good. It was so fine. Even those that, that are looking for sources, let's find the source for this. That some said they didn't go and tell Rabbi Michal, okay, according to this and according to that, and according to that, this is what you should do. The Rebbe told him what to do. But where did the Rebbe get it from? It said like this. Uh, there are people that are always interested in finding the sources for every statement, including this one. In fact, this saying has a clear source in the Zoyar. Zohar is the first book of Kabbalah, the foundational book of Kabbalah. And the Zohar teaches that the joy a person expresses down below is reflected back to them from above. So let's go to the quote from the Zohar, source number two. Heaven reflects back to earth its own state. Oh, that's, that's a little bit <laughs> complicated statement over there. So what does that mean? When we display joy down here, Heaven reflects joy back to us. When we are sad, heaven responds in kind. So the Zohar says very clearly, the way God is going to deal with you depends on your attitude. If you smile, God will smile to you. What does it mean when God smiles? There's health, there's success, and all the wonderful things, security. But when we're sad and we're in a down mood, eh, things start to, you know, things become sad. So it's better to be an optimist. Much better. Exactly. Not just as better. We must be optimistic. Exactly. Being optimistic, that's the way to go. This is what the Zoyar says. Um, now we're going to bring a quote, actually, from a letter that the Tzemach Tzedek wrote. Um, Larry is asking, is there a difference between think good and it will be for the be good or think good and it will be for the best? I haven't seen that difference. The, the Yiddish words are tracht gut, think good, it will be good. I don't know if there's a difference, at least in this context, between good and best. Good, you know, good is good. Uh, source to his heart to understand how, how good the Hamas massacre occurred while Jews were joyously celebrating a Shabbos in Yom Tov. You have a very good question. I don't have an answer to that. I, you know, <laughs> I say, let's put, let's put it this way. Just because we learned Zaya doesn't mean we could answer all the problems in the world. There is, if anyone's going to come and explain to me how a massacre could happen in the middle of Simchas Teir or how a massacre could happen on a regular Wednesday or on a Tisha B'Av, I also won't accept the explanation. So it doesn't matter the fact that it was, it was Simchas Teir. Uh, you know, it could be uh, Tisha B'Av, etc. However, I, I do want to say one thing before we continue. Without minimizing how terrifying and terrible the massacre was, um, you know, there's a lot of videos out there, a lot of interviews and a lot of different stuff. I saw a very interesting interview with, um, with a, a, a reservist who, some in the morning when he heard, 
he lived lives near he lives near Jerusalem. So he was walking out of his house and he heard the sirens in Jerusalem because there were rockets that were coming towards Jerusalem. And his father told him, "This is like for real. This is no joke." So he got his phone and he realized what was going on in the south. He jumped into a car, and he was in the south. He was he was fighting off the terrorists. You know that day, literally two hours later, he was he was involved. He said something fascinating. He said, I mean, he's involved in, in the whole issues of Iran and terrorism and everything. He said, it's impossible that their plan was only to come in from Gaza. These guys, what they planned on doing, Hezbollah definitely was going to come in from the north at the same time. It didn't make any sense. He says, based on everything that they understood of what their plans could be and what they should be, etc., they have to come together. Yom Kippur War. Only Egypt attacked. Egypt and Syria at the same time, right? So if you have a little bit of brains, which they actually do, it wouldn't just be Hamas coming from there. It would also be Hezbollah. I don't want to get too involved in this. He basically said, you have to realize something. They were planning on, on occupying land. The amount of stuff they had, and, and they were so sure of themselves, they were planning on occupying land that they were going to tie us up there for weeks trying to get them out. He says, you have no idea the types of miracles that happened that day. He says, it's terrible what happened. I mean, it was a massacre and a holocaust. It was terrible. He said, but you have no idea of how many miracles occurred on that day and the fact that we're able to basically close up the border within with less than 48 hours says is something that is is truly miraculous so obviously that's not the going way of looking at things uh, but I'm sure once Hamas is completely obliterated and we have the time to breathe and look back at things uh, we are definitely going to uncover and discover many many miracles that happened on that day um, but again, I'm not trying to explain how is it possible such a thing could happen on such a joyous day. Most things we don't understand. But whatever we are given, whatever we are told, whatever we are explained, we have to do our best to, to take that going forward. Larry, I see you put yourself on uh, the screen. You want to say something? Yeah, I guess I have another question, and that is because it's so hard to single out where the Hamas fighters are because they... They hide and they, you know, use human shields. If it turns out the only way to conquer Hamas is just to wipe out all 2.3 million, does Judaism say that's what we should do? When Bibi Netanyahu and Galant and Gadi Eisenkot and uh, Mr. Herzi, General Herzi, are going to come to me to ask for the halachic rendering of that, I'll figure it out. Until then, I'm going to do my job in saying to Hillim doing more mitzvahs and learning Torah. <laughs> who, who, who am I to... Uh, let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. I, I didn't know if it's the kind of thing where if they're like a Malek, we're, we're commanded to wipe them out or something. Like no, that. no, 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 no. Right, right now in this war, there's only one religious obligation, and that is to ensure the security of, of the people of Israel. That, that's all that matters. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes. I'll, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way, you know, after the fact, everyone is very smart. But in 1945, yeah, and we had to beat the Japanese, the President of the United States decided he's dropping two atomic bombs on two cities, not on, not on military installations. He dropped it on two cities. Let me see The Hague drag Mr. Truman in front of The Hague to try him for war crimes. You're a chachim, you're, you're smart after the fact, after the Japanese are conquered and crushed, and uh, you have them under your boot, then you can say, oh, that wasn't nice. But hey, he was looking at a situation of a drawn-out war, a million Americans killed. Nah, that's it. So in other words, like this, right now we're in the middle of a problem. And we could be armchair generals, and we could sit there and, and pontificate and say this and say that. 
The only ones that can have to make the decisions are the ones that have to make the decisions. And hopefully the only thing that is motivating their decision making is not the media and not the world and not what everyone's going to say about them. The only thing that should motivate their decision making is the realities on the ground and knowing what must be done in order to protect the Israeli citizens, the Jews of Israel, even the non-Jews, to protect the people of Israel. That's all they, that's their obligation. They have no obligation to protect anyone else. This is an important thing to realize. That when you have an enemy coming against you, you must fight the enemy. That's what you must do, and you must crush the enemy. That's it. And by the way, every nation fights like that. How many civilians died in Afghanistan, and in Iraq, and all these places, and I haven't yet seen one American general or one American politician dragged before the Hague, right? Okay. Anyway, now, so I, I hope I answered your question. You. Again, I'm not, I'm not giving a ruling. I'm not saying everyone has to be... That, that's all I'm saying. All I'm saying is that there's only one motivating factor in this entire issue. And, that, and that's called morals, by the way. Everything else is immoral. All righty. Let's continue. Source number three. Um, this is a letter from the Tzamach Tzedek from the, the Rebbe we were just talking about, the one who had answered Rebbe Michal and said, think good and it will be good. So he, he elaborates on this concept. Um, so just to give context over here, the Tzamach Tzedek was the grandson of the founder of the Chabad movement, Rabbi Shneir Zalman. He was known as the Alter Rebbe, the Old Rebbe. He lived in a city called Liadi, and in 1812, when, when Napoleon invaded, uh, invaded Ru- Russia, so the, so the Alter Rebbe and his entire family, etc., they ran away from the Yadi to run away from Napoleon. Long story. Anyway, on the way, there was a lot of trouble, a lot of issues. The Alter Rebbe became very ill, and it was in the dead of winter, the Alter Rebbe passed away. It was a terrible, terrible blow to the Chabad community, to the family. It was a terrible blow. So now he is quoting what happened the night that his grandfather passed away. So he said, I heard from the mouth of my saintly grandfather in Piena. Piena was a small little town where they were. They were just stopping over in a small town, didn't even have a Jewish cemetery in Piena. Uh, but but it, was, it, was, it was a Saturday night, and the Alter Rebbe was very, very ill, and everyone knew it. So, so the Tzemach Tzedek says, I heard from my grandfather in Piena. This is what the Magid, who was the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, we're going all the way back here. This is what the Magid would say on the verse. On the likeness of the throne was the likeness of a man above it. There's a, there's a saying, I believe it's in Ezekiel, when, when the prophet sees the chariot, the heavenly chariot, that has on four corners, has different faces. And above the chariot, there's the likeness of a man, a, like, a, a figure of a human being. So the Magid learned into the verse, he, he learned the idea, what we show down below is reflected above. The same idea that the Zora said. In other words, that God is a reflection of us. Therefore, he enjoined me not to sing a sad tune. This occurred while I was praying the evening prayer on the night before he passed away. I was praying with a sad tune, and he waited for me to finish, and then he told this to me. Here is the grandson. He sees his grandfather is dying, and he's saying his prayer. So obviously, he's, uh, he's not in the best of moods, and he's singing a melancholy tune. His grandfather, who was on his deathbed, tells him, don't do that. Don't, don't sing a sad tune. On the contrary, sing a happy tune. And the Tzemach Tzedek continues. There are fears that people cause themselves. Fears that they have the choice and ability to prevent. 
This is evident from the fact that we are commanded not to have fear during war. As the verse says, let your heart not be afraid. If the Torah speaks about war and going out to war, it says, don't be afraid. How can you tell someone, don't be afraid? He's going out to war. He's facing the cannons, right? <clears throat> Where's that verse from? It's in Parshat uh, uh, Shoftim. It's, uh, it's in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy. I wish they would bring it here. They don't, they don't bring the exact verse. It, it, it's in, basically in the middle of the book of Deuteronomy, where it speaks about the Jewish people getting ready to go out to war. And God Almighty tells them, do not fear the enemy. Don't fear. Go out to war and have no fear at all. So the question is, how is that possible? This seems incredulous. What if they are still afraid when they witness the scenes of war? It is known that all commandments can only be regarding things that we have the ability to choose to follow or disobey, right? The Torah could tell you, don't eat chametz on Pesach, right? Okay, so I could choose to eat chametz or not eat chametz, right? Everyone has the ability not to eat chametz. Uh, they they say, uh, uh, you know, don't eat milk and meat together. I have the option of not eating it together. No one is forced to do so. But how could you, um, how could you command the people about an emotion which seems to be a natural emotion, right? You go out into war. I never was, but I imagine going onto the battlefield. It's frightening. It's terrifying. So he continues. There are three garments of the human soul thought, speech, and action. These are our primary behaviors, and we have free choice to think, speak, and act as we wish. Even if the heart is afraid, one can draw their thoughts, speech, and action away from that and not dwell on it altogether, but rather on uplifting matters. The Tzemach Tzadik doesn't say, you're afraid? No, you're not. Of course you're afraid. You're going into battle, you're afraid. But the person has the option to think about something completely different and to sing the song. They could do that. Ask the soldiers, they go out into war. They're able to be in a terrifying situation and completely, you know, block that out. To block out the realities that cause that fear and to sing the tune and to be happy. Right? Amazing. Um... This is the commandment of let your heart not fear. It's not that your heart shouldn't react to a frightful situation. What it's saying is not to dwell on the fear. A person who induces fear is in violation of a negative commandment. If one ignores it, the fear in their hearts will dissipate. At the very least, it will immediately become dormant, and over time it will completely dissipate and not return. Try it. I mean, it's not just with regard to fear. In general, when people are very angry and upset, what's the best way to get rid of anger? Just stop thinking about those things that make you angry. Think about something else. The Baal Shem Tov once said, if you're angry, close your lips. Just, just close them. <laughs> when you're angry, just don't say a word because if you're going to start to speak and you're going to work yourself up and blah, 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 just, just be quiet. Everything will calm down. Does that mean that the cause for the anger is going to go away? Not, not necessarily. But at least you won't get angry. In other words, emotions are not a must. They're natural, but you can control them. How? By thinking about something else, doing something else, and then everything will change. 
at least within you, you're going to be changed, a, a completely changed person. Let's continue here from the Tzamaq Tzadik. The primary method of distracting the mind from fear is to redirect it to other matters. These can be mundane, happy matters, as well as Torah study, with, which gladdens the heart. By studying Torah every day, especially with a study partner in the areas of practical Jewish law, the esoteric parts of, of Torah, you should certainly not... This is in a letter that he's writing to someone. It says, you should certainly not discuss the depressing matters. Act as if you are happy, completely happy. And even if you do not feel it now, you will ultimately become happy. What's the one-liner for that? Fake it until you make it. Fake your happiness, you'll become happy. Um, this is because the heart follows a person's actions and deeds. As Maimonides writes, he should repeatedly perform the acts which conform to the standards of the golden... No. There's a, there's a mistake here. Fine. He should do this constantly until these acts are easy for him and do not present any difficulty. Then these character traits will become a permanent part of his personality. A lot of people want to say, follow your heart. Torah says, no, no, don't follow your heart. Your heart is a wild beast and goes to all the wrong places. Control your heart. How? Do the right things. When you do what's proper and you think proper things and you distract your heart, you distract your mind from terrifying things, from hurtful things, from angering, from things that make you angry, then all of those feelings are going to dissipate, they're going to go away, and they will be replaced with courage and with joy, etc. Alrighty, so what do we have so far? It's a, we have a story that Rabbi Michal had a son who was very deathly ill, and he came to the Tzamach Tzedek, and he told him, Tracht gut gut. Think good, and it will be good. So the question is, where did the Rabbi get this from? He got it from the Zoyar. The Zoyar says that like God behaves as a reflection of us. If we are happy, God is happy. He shows us joy. He shows us you know, happy things and good things. But you know what someone might say? <laughs> the Zohar, going to esoteric uh, teachings. I want something more practical, something more, you know. So the Rebbe says, guess what? I'll get you an even better source. For this idea of tracht gut wird sein gut. And here the Rebbe is going to take us on a journey that's going to re... In other words, we're never going to see this idea of tracht gut wird sein gut in the same way um, ever again. All righty. Right. Yeah. We, we know it's a wonderful philosophy and a beautiful tool, mm -hmm. but it doesn't always work out so far. Uh, 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 so, uh, uh. so when people have been convinced to incorporate this into their daily activities, that doesn't unfortunately meet with something terrible... And they come to you and say, yeah, I, I did all this, I listened to all this, but it just didn't work out for me. So, you're asking a very good question. What you're saying is, you know, I'll ask you a different question. I'll ask you a different question. I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I like, I love... You like the philosophy, right. Let me ask you a question. If someone says, no, how do we protect a nation from an enemy, right? And so we'll say, okay, let's get all the experts here. Let's figure it out. They come up with, uh, with, with, a, with a system, right? And you invest billions of dollars in the defense. Does it always work? No. Does that mean that all the professionals were maliciously doing the wrong thing? Does that mean that their advice was bad advice? Sometimes it could be. It could be, it could be it was bad advice, right? But not necessarily. In other words, we don't say, okay, now I'm going to try to find 
a new way of how to build defense. We're not going to use any professionals. We're just going to bring, uh, you know, all the armchair generals. And I know, you know, everyone on Twitter is going to give ideas on how to do it. They'll do a better job. No, we know that there are professionals. They have ideas. They have this, whatever. In other words, like this. In everything, not necessarily does it always work out. In everything. Why? Why does it not always necessarily work out? Because the fact of the matter is, God has God has a plan, right? God has a plan. Whatever the plan is, we definitely don't understand it. Does he definitely have a plan? Sure. Of course he has a plan. Are we always happy with the plan? Not, no, not at all. Are we uh, in agreement with the way his plan works out? Not at all. So there, there, are, there are two things that we always have to bear in mind. There's our obligations. There's what we need to do. There's what we are told works. And then there's realizing that whatever the end result is or was, that doesn't mean that, uh, that, that what we were told to do or the thing don't work. For whatever reason, it was decided in heaven that this is what's going to happen, right? Is there an explanation for it? The only time there will be an explanation for it is when Mashiach will come. In fact, that's one of the, the ideas of Mashiach. It's that only then will all of the tsaris, all of the troubles of, of exile, start to make sense. Until then, don't you dare even try to explain why things are happening, how it happened, how could it be, right? So, um, oh, so now let's see. So, so here, Torah is giving us a very interesting um, perspective and saying that when there is a problem, when the doctors say the kid's going to die, right? The kid, so now what do you do? So the Tzemach Sadiq told the Chassid, what should you do? Think good. Think good and it will be good. And where does that come from? So far we know it comes from the Zohar. But now we're going to see that it comes actually from a story in the Torah, a story in the five books of Moses, a story with Moses himself. So now we're going to go, <clears throat> say here, let, let's read on page 7. While the esoteric Zohar doesn't carry legal authority, there is an additional source for this approach in the revealed dimension of the Torah. Okay, so what's the story? Moses was born to his father Amram and Yecheved. When he was three months old, he was put out onto the river in the basket. And there was a, a woman, a princess, her name was Batya. She took him out of the water and she adopted him. Fine. He's about 20-ish, 25, whatever it is. He had grown up in the, in the Egyptian palace. He knew he was a Jewish child. He had a Jewish education. But I'm not going to get into the details here. He goes out and he sees that his, his people, right, his brothers and sisters are enslaved. And he notices that they're, oh, let, let's read it inside. It came to pass in those days that Moses grew up and went out to his brothers and looked at their burdens. He saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man, his brother. Moses turned this way and that way, and he saw that there was no one watching. So he struck the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Fine. Rashi, who is the main commentator on the Torah, striking a Hebrew man, hitting and whipping him, the victim was the husband of Shlomit Badivri, who the, who the Egyptian had laid his eyes on. At night, the Egyptian summoned Shlomit's husband from his house and entered and lay with his wife, who thought it was her husband. The husband came back and realized what happened. After the Egyptian realized that he had been exposed, he whipped and beat the husband all day. Right? So there was the scandal going on. The Egyptian wanted to cover his tracks, and he was harassing this Hebrew man. And Moses killed the Egyptian. He saved the man. He saved the, the Jewish guy. Moses went out on the second day, and behold, two Hebrew men were quarreling. 
He said to the wicked one, Why are you going to strike your friend? He retorted, Who made you a man, a prince, and a judge over us? Do you plan to slay me like you slayed the Egyptian? Moses became afraid and he said, Indeed, the matter has become known. All right, so when Moses killed the man, he made sure no one was watching. He looked here, he looked there, he decided this man's got to go, he killed him. It was a secret, he buried him. No one knows about it, covered his tracks. But the next day, when he tried to break up a fight uh, between two Jewish guys, the two fellows, one of them said, are you going to kill me like you killed that guy? And Moses became afraid and said, indeed, the matter has become known. What's the problem with the matter becoming known? Pharaoh is going to find out. There's going to be issues. And that's exactly what happened. Page 8, Pharaoh heard of this incident and he sought to slay Moses. So Moses fled from before Pharaoh. He stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by the well and the story continues, right? So what made Moses run away from Egypt? The fact that his killing the Egyptian man was discovered. Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses. Moses ran away. Now Rashi, we're going to analyze Rashi's commentary on these verses. Moses became afraid as its plain meaning would indicate. Now, there's a lot of words in the Torah that are translated in their plain meaning, right? And Rashi doesn't say, yeah, this is the plain meaning of the plain. <laughs> Why would Rashi make an emphasis and say, Moses became afraid? Yes, he literally became afraid. Why would, why would he think any differently? Let's hold that question. There's also a Midrashic interpretation that Moses... Okay, we'll, we'll skip that for now. Um, indeed, the matter has become known as its plain meaning would indicate. Why is Rashi kind of emphasizing? Yes, he became afraid. The matter became known. I mean, you just read the words, translate them. That's what it means. Why would I think any differently? Uh, so let's go here. The Rebbe is going to analyze this. We need to understand why Rashi needs to comment as its plain meaning would indicate. The meaning seems self-understood even to a beginner schoolchild. <clears throat> Before killing the Egyptian officer the previous day, Moses had looked to both sides to confirm that no one was watching. After killing the Egyptian, he buried the body in the sand. So it's very clear that when he now realizes that everyone knows what he did, he is afraid and says, indeed, the matter has been exposed. So what is Rashi trying to explain here? It seems like the words are self-explanatory. Why does Rashi have to uh, say something? So, page 9. Rashi here is addressing a different question. The commentators explain that the reason why Moses fled Egypt was because Pharaoh heard that he had what he had done and wanted to kill him. This raises the question of why the Torah tells us that Moses was afraid when he realized that word had gotten out. This wasn't what caused him to flee. What caused him to flee? That Pharaoh heard about it, therefore he had to run away. Why does the Torah have to tell us that Moses became afraid? The Torah could just say, Pharaoh found out, Moses ran for his life. The Torah doesn't say extra words just to, you know, dramatize the events and, you know, no. What, why does the Torah have to make this emphasis on the fact? Why does it have to tell us that what was going on in Moshe's emotions? Why does it have to tell us that Moses became afraid? The reason why Moses fled was that he was afraid of Pharaoh, and he would have fled even if only Pharaoh had heard and the matter hadn't become public knowledge. And if it was the reverse, that the matter had become public knowledge, but Pharaoh was unaware of it, Moses wouldn't have fled. 
his flight was because of Pharaoh. This raises the question of why the Torah sees it necessary to relate to us that Moses was afraid when he learned that word had gotten out. Okay, so that's the question. Why do we have to know Moses is getting afraid? All we have to know is, Pharaoh finds out, Pharaoh wants to kill Moses, Moses runs. Why are we, why are we digging into Moshe's emotions? The answer must be that had Moses not been afraid, Pharaoh would never have found out. Because what's the rule? Think good, and it will be good. Moses should have trusted that no Jew would report on him, uh, and word would not spread, and Pharaoh wouldn't find out. So what's the Torah telling us? Moses messed up. When it says that Moses was afraid, that's what caused the matter to be known. Instead of Moses having strong faith in the fact that nothing to worry about. It's only Jews that know about it, right? No, no one's going to tell Pharaoh. I have nothing to worry about. I'm not afraid at all. If he would have not been afraid at all, nothing would happen. Pharaoh wouldn't find out. He could stay in Egypt. But the Torah tells us, no, no, no. Moses was afraid. He feared. He's like, everyone knows. And if everyone knows, Pharaoh's going to know. That's what caused it to happen. Is it like a, a dog that when he senses that you're afraid of him, he's more likely to bite you as opposed to somebody who at least acts like they're not afraid? Maybe. Maybe it's, it's similar to that, but it, what, what it's saying here is a very interesting thing. That trust in God is not that, okay, I have no control over the situation, and I'm just trusting that everything will be fine, and that's it. No, what, what it's telling us is, that when you trust in God, that trust causes that that everything should be good. But in this case, it's trust in Jews yeah. that they don't turn you in that that has power, and I have a problem with that. Oh, so yeah, it's not. It's, it's, so again, it's not trust in Jews. Right. What, what 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 you know? We're saying is like this: if let's say Moses would kill the Egyptian, and other Egyptians would know, right? Is there even a chance that word wouldn't get back to Pharaoh? No. There's no chance. Egyptians see it, boom, it's going straight to Pharaoh. If only Jews see, is there a chance, is there any logic to think that Jews know how to keep keep quiet and look, try to cover it up? There is no chance that that would happen. There is a chance. There is a, in other words, when it does happen, we get upset. Why did you tell on me? Right. You're a fellow Jew. In other words, there's a certain logical mechanism in our mind that says, look, at least it's in the mishpucha. At least it's in the family. The family will cover it up, right? In, in other words, there's a certain, there's a certain natural. Yeah, there's an expectation there. If an Egyptian would see, boom, it's game over. <laughs> forget about fear. Forget about it. You run, run for your life. But if it's only Jews that see, so Moses had could have had that expectation and say, I have no reason to fear, because only Jews saw it. That's it. I have nothing to fear. And if he wouldn't be fearful, okay. His lack of fear, his complete trust in God would cause that everything will be fine. Right? We're going back to this. In other words, again, you have to realize how, how we're, we're coming to this conclusion here. We're digging into a detail that is told to us in the story, which seems to have no reason to be there. It's superfluous. Why is the detail there? Why do we have to know that Moses became afraid? Apparently, this fear was not just a natural reaction. This fear played a role in the problem. That's what we're learning here. Moshe's fear caused the result. It wasn't a punishment. 
That's just the natural way of things going. When you're fearful, okay. So, in other words, if you're sad, God's also sad. If you're fearful, so whatever it, that fear is, oh, you're going to be found out. Boom, you're found out. That's what I, right? So, in other words, the Torah in this story with these words telling us that Moses was fearful is actually communicating to us this rule. Tracht good, think good, sein good, and it will be good. In other words, thinking good is not just flying away into la-la land. It's not, it's not the mechanism of the brain to protect you from trauma. No. Think good is an active... We have an obligation to be actively involved in thinking good in order that it should be good. I'll give you just an example. And, and the Rebbe didn't just preach this. He practiced it. In 1977, on Simchas Torah, the night of Shemini Atzeres, actually, so the first night of Simchas Torah, in the middle of the Hakafot, everyone was singing and dancing, etc., the Rebbe had a heart attack. A very, very bad heart attack. Doctors afterwards said they don't even understand how the Rebbe survived the heart attack. The Rebbe had a terrible, terrible heart attack. Obviously, everyone ran out, and you know, it was a, it was a long story, but so everyone was standing outside. There's how many thousands of Hasidim were there for Simchas Torah. Simchas Torah was the time to be by the Rebbe. People came from all over the world. The Rebbe was 75 at the time, about a massive heart attack in public. Um, so everyone was just completely shattered. And as things started to go, you know, the Rebbe went to his room, whatever, there's a whole thing. The Rebbe sent out a message and said, if you want me to be better, start to dance. Start dancing. And that's what they did. The next night was supposed to be the Simchas Torah, HaKafot, etc. And people, my father was there. You can ask my father. He said, 770 was packed. The show was packed with Chassidim. Dancing and dancing. He said they were crying and dancing. And what were they dancing? They were dancing the tune and the words were like this. Uh, the Rebbe should be healthy. Yeah? The Rebbe is Ozaim Gezunt. And then at a certain point, like two or three hours in, the words changed. Not that the Rebbe should be healthy, it's the Rebbe is healthy. And there, so this is literally, I mean, this is on the bottom floor. The Rebbe's room is on the top floor. The Rebbe could hear all the noise, everything. Doctors were with the Rebbe then. And when, when, the, when the words changed to the Rebbe is healthy, the Rebbe smiled and said, that's chassidim. That, that's how, that's how chassidim that, that's what I'm expecting. Now, as Rebbe said, you want me to be better? Don't mope and cry and worry for the worst. Be positive that everything is going to be for the best. And dance. And the Rebbe made a recovery. I mean, after 19, only after 1977, that's when Chabad, you know, became Chabad that it is today. Specifically through the Rebbe's intense efforts and involvement and all of that, right? The Rebbe specifically demanded that if you want to have a positive outcome, behave that way. Think good, dance, sing, do that type of thing. Again, do we control every outcome? No. But when we feel, what what can we do? What can we do? The answer is you could do something. And it's not a pipe dream. And it's not this mechanism of the mind in order to protect you from trauma. No, no, no. This is the most responsible thing to do, the most active thing that we need to do. And the Torah tells us, I mean, the story of Moses. Basically, the Torah is telling us, if he wouldn't have been afraid, he wouldn't be found out. He was afraid. Boom. That's when it happened. Oh, so now, we're we going to sit, we're, we're a little bit tight on time here. So let's skip page 10 and 11. And 11. Okay, let's go to page 12. The lesson. The lesson we can learn from this. Hold on one second.
Now, I'll just mention what, what the idea of page 10 and 11 is. We all know about the, neg- the, the, the terrible sin of Lashon Harav, speaking negatively about others, right? So the Talmud says an interesting thing, that, when, when, that Lashon Hara kills three people. In other words, Lashon Hara has a negative impact on three people. The one who speaks it, the one who hears it, and the one who is spoken about. So, the one who speaks it, he's doing a terrible sin. Right? So we understand why speaking Lashon Hara for the one speaking it is a bad thing. You're sinning, you're, you're gossiping. The one who hears it is also is actively involved in receiving gossip. And, uh, you, know, so he's, you know, both of them are, we understand why both of them are problematic. But the guy who's being spoken about, what did he do wrong? What did she do wrong? What, what's, what's their problem? So the problem is like this. When you, when, when, you know, sometimes people have negative things about them. It's true. Not everyone is all positive. But if you don't speak about it, it, stays, it remains dormant. It remains hidden. When you speak negatively about a person, it welcomes that negativity. It, it brings that negativity out. It reveals it. So in other words, if someone is speaking Lashon Hara about me, it's negatively affecting me because someone is speaking about it and is revealing it. Right? The point, it goes all in line with the same idea. If you think positively, it will be good. You think negatively, you become fearful and afraid. Okay, then all, all, the, all the problems start to come out. That, that, that's when all the issues happen. So now let's go to um, page 12. Um, the lesson we can learn from this is that our soul descended into this world where it faces various impediments to, observe, to the observance of Torah and mitzvahs. We shouldn't think that we lack the ability to overcome these difficulties. We need to think good, and it will be good. We need to be confident that we have the power to overcome the impediments, and then we will be able to. When we think good, it will be good. So that's a very specific instruction for every person on a personal level. You think positively in every aspect of life, not just when there's problems with you know, the financial problems or health problems, whatever it is, but let's say we have a certain challenge when it comes to living Jewishly. We say, oh yeah, how can I do this? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have any friends as a result of keeping kosher or keeping Shabbos or whatever it is. How can I make money if I'm, keeping, if I'm closing the store on Shabbos? The answer is, don't worry about it. Think positively and you'll be fine. You'll be positive. So now, let's just go to the, uh, on page 13, no, let's skip page 13. Let's go to page 14. Page 14 uh, takes us to 1973. Anyone know what 1973 was? Kippur War. Kippur War, yeah. So 1973, the war broke out on Yom Kippur, which is the 10th day of Tishrei. Two days, three days later uh, was the 13th of Tishrei, which was the yard site of the 4th Lubavitcher Rebbe. And traditionally, the Rebbe would have a farbrengan, a public gathering, a very joyous, pub, joyous public gathering on that uh, evening. Just like a day before Sukkot, before... Anyway, the Yom Kippur War is raging in Israel, and things were not good. Three days in. It took about a week for things to stabilize. Three days in, it was tzoros. It was really, really bad. Uh, but the farbrengan was scheduled. And the Rebbe came out to the farbrengan. And the Rebbe asked a question. What's the question? Page 14. We must first address the question. How can we be holding a Hasidic Fabrengen while Jews are at war? The Rebbe wasn't ignoring the fact that we're at war. The Rebbe was heavily involved in that. The Rebbe said it would seem inappropriate to have a joyous occasion 
when, uh, when there's a lot of problems in Israel. So he continued and he said, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev writes that the Baal Shem Tov would constantly teach publicly that the verse, God is your shadow, means that God acts like our shadow, reflecting the moves we make. You're recognizing this idea here, right? So God is our shadow. The way we conduct ourselves dictates how God acts towards us. This is also taught in the Zohar, which we quoted earlier. The way we present our face here is the way God presents himself to us from above. When we exhibit a joyful countenance, God shows us a joyful countenance from above. The Zohar continues on the theme in further detail. It is therefore clear that the way we can be of help at this time is by exhibiting joy as joy has the power to break through all boundaries. I'll just tell you, that Fabrengen, I mean, in my opinion, that Fabrengen is one of the most heavenly Fabrengens I've ever heard. The Rebbe continued later on. The Rebbe started to speak very, very intensely about what caused the war. He was very, very critical about certain policies that happened, and the Rebbe said that whoever made those policies, they weren't, they weren't speaking on behalf of the Jewish people, and we're going to make that announcement here, and by saying, Amen, we're going to neutralize any negative issues. The Rebbe was very, very adamant. And then, so everyone, like, you know, everyone screamed Amen, and then there's silence. Now, if you're familiar with the Rebbe's Fabrengas, it was never a silent moment. Either the Rebbe's talking, or they're singing, or whatever. I'm listening to this Fabrengas, the Rebbe, you know, there was this 10-minute talk where the Rebbe was, I mean, clearly the Rebbe was fighting a war somewhere in heaven, and everyone shouts Amen, a very loud Amen, and then it's silent for two minutes, on the clock. Two minutes, just silence. And you could tell that there was so much tension in the room. You know how many people over there, their family was in Israel, there were people fighting, they knew what was going on, and just like, there was two minutes of tension-filled silence. All of a sudden, the Rebbe started to sing, This is like the song of joy for the holidays. The Rebbe started to sing it so powerfully and so loudly. Everything changed. And the Rebbe was basically saying, there's a war in Israel, we're not on the front lines shooting and, and fighting, etc. The way we're going to win the war is through joy. Not because we're going into La La Land, not because we don't want to think about what's going on in Israel, but because the Torah tells us, starting from Moses, through the Zohar, the story of the Tzamach Tzedek, the Baal Shem Tov, everyone, everyone is basically backing this idea that what is the strategy for winning the war? Be positive. Have high morale. Be joyful. And then it's going to reflect back on us, and everything is going to turn out okay. And um, so, if we're trying to figure out what do we do, what do we do? Do should we sit there on our phones and get all nervous and on social media they're saying this, and the and the BBC reports this way, and the CNN says this way, and all that? Forget it. I mean, you can read it. You know, <laughs> be my guest. Read whatever it is. But then shut the phone and say, let's dance because we're Jews. Let's learn some Torah. Let's say a prayer. Let's say l'chaim. Yes. During war, say l'chaim. Say l'chaim with another Jew. And, and be joyful and happy and proud to be Jewish. You see all the soldiers over there? All the videos they have of the soldiers, these guys are dancing as if they don't have a, a worry in the world. They're dancing. Why? Because they're proud to be Jewish and they're proud to be protecting the Holy Land. And may God Almighty help us that we should be joyful, God should be joyful, there should be joy all around, especially the ultimate joy, the coming of Mashiach. Amen. And, and with that, we conclude today's, uh, today's lesson. Larry has a question. Let's hear. So, should, should I should I interpret this as to say that we should never 
be sad that we should never um, sing a minor key song? I mean, you know, I mean, we have we have holidays like Tisha B'Av. I mean, right. no one tells us to be joyful on that day. Is why is that different? Is it just because it's in the past? The rest of the year. So so first of all, first of all, like this, there are times where we're supposed to be sad. By the way, King Solomon. There's a famous quote from King Solomon. There's a time for peace and a time for war, a time for joy and a time for sad. There's a time for everything. Uh, for example, someone who loses a loved one, someone who loses a, a parent dies, right? There's an obligation to sit shiva. There's an obli- obligation to cry. There's an obligation to tear, tear clothing. There, there's an obligation for these things. All in measure, right? After, after three days, you're not supposed to cry anymore. And after seven days, you're not supposed to sit shiva anymore. There's, there's certain rules, right? But everything... So, so sadness definitely has its place, 100%. It's not, it's not a question. Tisha B'Av is a sad day, 100%. Um, however, however, um, during war, when someone's in the middle of battle, you have to ask soldiers this. When, when friends fall in battle, there's no time for sadness. There's no time for sadness. They have to keep on moving, right? Because if they're going to stop and sit shiva for their friend, guess who's next? Them. Right? So when you're in the middle of a battle, you're in the middle of the, of, of the war, there's no time for mourning, there's no time for any of these things. Most of all because it's not helpful. It's not helpful. The only thing that is helpful is joy, is positivity, is morale. After the war is over and we won, then we mourn our losses, then we have the sadness for all the things that happened, etc. No one is suggesting that the massacre of October 7th, the massacre of Simchas Torah is going to be remembered as a joyful day. Simchas Torah will continue to be a joyful day. So that's what Simchas Torah is. No one can take that away. No one's turning Simchas Torah into Tisha B'av. And if they do, it's a terrible thing. And, and that's not what the people that were killed want to happen. However, however, even though, yes, let, let's put it this way. No one is happy from what happened. Whatever you think about what happened, it, it's terrible. And, 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 and should cause a person to cry, etc. But that's not what we need right now. We don't have to dwell on the, on the atrocities of October 7th, the atrocities of the first day of the war, in order to be victorious in the war. Now we have to always stick into the face of the world. Dude, it's like, guess who you're asking for a ceasefire for? You know what I'm saying? Stop all of this nonsense. But for us Jews uh, who know what, what's going on, and we know the deal, we know the situation, uh, what's most needed from us now is positivity, joy um and why because we're god's shadow and or god is our shadow and um the more positive we are going to be the more positive the outcome of the war is going to be as well all righty yes Baruch Baruch Baruch. Baruch. Uh, I'm, I'm very proud of your answers uh <laughs> i i think they, they were very positive and I am one that believes in the power of positive thinking because I've gone through a lot of things in my life that only through positive thinking I was able to get ahead. But I am proud of you and, and I appreciate very much your answers. Okay, so, th- so that's where we're at. I guess we're all going to come away from here uh, with a bit more joy. It's too bad I don't have wine and, and uh, vodka to say L'chaim here. But wherever you are, take any type of uh, anything. Make yourself happy tonight. And tomorrow, wake up and sing a, you know, sing a song, dance a jig, and go and do what you have to do. And say, and say some Tehillim, say verses of Tehillim, and do an extra mitzvah for the Jews in Israel. And give money to the Jews of Israel. Help them out. Um, but it has to be done in a positive and a joyful manner. 
All right, and with that, I bid you a good night.